Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening today and a special welcome to our new affiliates in Montana, Big Sky Radio 1450 KY LW and Lockwood Billings, KBSR 1490 and Laurel Billings and KHDN 1230 AM and Harden. It's great to be up in Big Sky country. I've got to explain to my new audience of Montanans what we do on the last hour of each radio week. We do something very different from the rest of radio you'll hear anywhere else in the world. I actually give it over to my friends at Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, and we engage in a conversation, usually with the president of the university, Dr. Larry Arn, or with one of his uh, wonderful faculty members today, Dr. Matthew Gaetano, about why we call the West the West, not the Mountain West, not the Cowboy and Indians West, but the Western civilization where it came from. Because Hillsdale, and I do this with my new audience in mind, there might be some people up there who have not heard of Hillsdale, and they ought to know about Hillsdale, is a different place that aims very high to re-educate, actually, America and prepare a new generation of leaders. And Dr. Gaetano, with that in mind, that I've got four new affiliates uh, across the country that have never heard of Hillsdale Hour before, would you tell them what Hillsdale does and why it's unique? You're a graduate of there. you got your Ph.D. at Penn, but talk a little bit about Hillsdale. Well, Hillsdale College... uh talks about itself being a trustee of the this Western heritage that you were just talking about, which is uh, this this effort to engage Greco-Roman civilization, the, the Greeks and the Romans, the great achievements of ancient Athens, the great Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and others, and uh, and and Roman culture, Roman law, uh, the uh, the the way in which the Romans were able to uh, spread that Greek. Uh, cultural and philosophical and poetic achievement throughout the you know, the then known world uh, to create certain forms of order that have lasted into our own day and then this judeo-christian faith that uh, the the belief that there is one god who revealed himself to human beings and then the christian conviction that you know god became flesh and dwelt among us and and how especially in western europe these Kind of two ways of thinking about things were attempted to be br- attempted to be brought into synthesis by great figures in the Middle Ages, like Thomas Aquinas in the Renaissance, like Petrarch and Pico, who we might be talking about a bit today, and then uh, later on, uh, it, as expressed in this American experiment of liberty under law, uh, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, that drew so deeply at the from the wells of that. Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian civilization that the West represents. And I want to stress to our friends up in Montana, we're so glad to have you. Mostly I do the news of the day, as I've been doing all day today, and we do breaking news, and even once in a while we don't do the Hillsdale Hour in the last hour of the radio week, which is uh, in in the East. It's from 8 to 9 in the East, and from in, in the West, where I broadcast from, it's from 5 to 6. Once in a while, if breaking news intrudes, we don't do the Hillsdale Hour, but we committed to this project, and Hillsdale joined in and began to sponsor it a year and a half ago because of Dr. Arn's belief, vision, understanding that all Americans actually are interested in this. They just never get offered it. And Dr. Gaetano, I'm sure you teach freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors at Hillsdale's Michigan campus, and they all self-select. But what do you think about their parents and their families and their extended families and the people that you know? Is there, in fact, in America a hunger to understand where we came from and, and how we got into this predicament? Our, our Hillsdale students uh, yeah, do come from great families. I think one of the real unique features of, of Hillsdale is how we conceive of 
a partnership between the faculty, the professors, the administration, and the parents, and, and of course with the students, because we're all pursuing the same thing, which is you know, that which is true and that which is good. And you know, this is a, a place that is known to be you know, conservative, but in so many ways you know, we're conservative in a, in a very a deep and broad sense that we take ideas you know, from the works of Aristotle and Cicero seriously. You know, this is not just con the conservatism of the last 30, 40 years, but a, a vision of the human being that is uh, millennia old. And I think that's a really inspiring vision. And whenever we have parents come sitting in on classes or donors and, or other sorts of people who are kind of from the outside, if you will, to, to a certain extent, I always hear over and over again, you know, I wish I could go to a college like this and read these kinds of beautiful things uh, with, with uh, a community all devoted to a common enterprise, but one filled with debate and controversy, but one that's kind of anchored in something quite real and, and quite at the, true. At the beginning of every semester when I teach con law, and again, for the benefit of my, my new audience up in Montana, I teach constitutional law at Chapman, I always give a one-day lecture, which borrows from Bill Bryson's book by the same title, A Brief History of Nearly Everything. And the bottom line is, if you're going to understand how we arrived at the constitutional moment we're living in, which is one of crisis, you have to understand the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the English, and the Americans. Right. And you just have to do that. And I actually compress that into one lecture just to give them something to stand on when we get to 1789. I assume, Dr. Gaetano, you take years to form your Hillsdale student to be able to understand how we got to this day. That's right, and but we start right from the very beginning. This uh, Western Heritage course, where we you know begin with the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and with you know Plato and Aristotle. That's at the very beginning of their freshman year, and then all the way into their senior year as they deepen into their majors. We're 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 constantly asking these questions, and and that Western Heritage course, the literature course, where they're reading Homer. Uh, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare, this provides the framework uh, for them to inquire more deeply into specific areas of, of uh, you know, academic study and so on and so forth. And if you're piqued by this, listener, whether in Montana or a new listener anywhere across the United States that tuned into, you know, even my oldest affiliate, LA AM 870 The Answer, or one of my newest up in Montana, uh, now covering the Big Sky Skate. Here's what you do. You go to hughforhillsdale.com because Hillsdale is made available for free the 70-plus hours that we have done this, beginning with, indeed, the Iliad. That's where we mm -hmm. began, and the Odyssey by Homer. And we have now marched in a year and a half all the way up to what I thought was going to be, but thanks to Dr. Gaetano, is not the most difficult period of time. I mean, we've gone from uh, 500 years before the birth of Christ all the way up to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, we, we finished Thomas Aquinas with four weeks on the great medieval theologian and, and Dante we spent a couple of weeks and last week we tiptoed gingerly into what is really a 150 year period known as the Renaissance and we did so through the individual the a person by the name of Petrarch about whom by the way if you don't know anything about this stuff you're like me I, I knew nothing about Petrarch so sit down there and the guys at Hillsdale and the gals at Hillsdale break it down for us and they they lay it all out for us and this is a hard uh, Larry Arn bolted on you President Arn left you yes, high did. and dry Dr. Gaetano when it came time to do a 150-year march through the Renaissance, he absolutely ran for the hills. And so I want that noted for the record. Uh, and, and it is difficult, isn't it? Because as I was doing my notes and summary, and you guys sent me a wonderful summary, I said I have to somehow persuade people that in the 140 years between the death of Aquinas, who most people will know as the guy who wrote the Summa and the really smart Catholic monk, 
and the writing of Machiavelli's Prince, a lot happened. There are lots of names. Dante, Petrarch, Chaucer. Everyone had to read Chaucer in high school in the old days. Bruni. They know Michelangelo. They know the Da Vinci Code because of the Da Vinci Code, right? They know about Da Vinci. They may not know Pico, who we're going to talk about. But it's an amazing period of time, but not many American high school students and almost no college students spend any time on this. Why is that? That's an interesting question. I I think that a lot of students today are neglecting much of what came before 1800, let alone what came before 1500. And so, you know, a kind of general neglect of a kind of deep grasp of the history of our own culture and our own civilization. And I think that part of why the Renaissance is something uh, that's so complicated is that uh, it has a really interesting press that the Renaissance literally means a rebirth, right? The Enlightenment, this later period in the 18th century, you know, is a period of light. You know, how could you, clearly we have this idea of these things as good things, birth, life, light, you know, to oppose these things is to somehow be in favor of death and darkness or something like that. So, the, I mean, the Renaissance as a rebirth, you know, gives this image of what came before it as a period, you know, of, of darkness or, or, or where there wasn't this kind of life. And, and as, as we've gone through these Hillsdale Dialogues, you've seen just how rich that medieval period is. It wasn't just in the middle. It was something where you have figures like Aquinas and Dante with great, intellectual poetic achievement. So what is this Renaissance period? Uh, it seems to me that one of the most important features of it is this idea of humanism. Now, the, the word humanism today, I think, is often misunderstood because of its associations with secular humanism, right? This idea that, right. well, right. the human beings are the center of the world, and there's really nothing to worship outside of that human, human being. And I, and I want to make it extremely clear that in the Renaissance, you know, there, there's almost no one, if anyone, who really held that kind of secular humanist perspective. And so when we, you know, really think about humanism, we have to see it as something rooted in a Christian vision of the world, but one that privileged lay experience, the life of a city, the life of a family, ordinary life of, you know, non-clergymen. More of that coming up after the break. If it's your first Hillsdale Hour anywhere up in Montana with my great new affiliates up there, stick around. You'll get more of the taste. If you're one of our already addicted to the Hillsdale Hour, great hour ahead with Dr. Matthew Gaetano. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the Hour Americans, Hugh Hewitt. Thanks so much for listening today. It's the last hour of the radio week. I'm broadcasting from San Antonio, Texas. But as always, I am connected up with the studio up north in Hillsdale, Michigan, because it's the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue. I do 15 hours of radio a week. The last hour of the radio each week I give over to something high and noble and good, sort of your continuing legal education, your continuing cultural education, your continuing historical education. But I can't do that myself. I have to rely upon Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College and his wonderful faculty. Today, Dr. Matthew Gaetano, whose special is, is the Renaissance. That's what he does. And uh, he is helping us through this, this one, century and a half called the Renaissance. And I want to begin by talking about what it's not. And, and this takes us to a very obscure name, Jacob Burkhart. Mm-hmm. And Jacob Burkhart, uh, like many so uh, people, they write one essay and it screws everything up for 150 years. So, well, tell people, if you will, Dr. Gaetano, what Burkhart's uh, defamation of the Middle Ages was and the result that it worked. Yeah. Jakob Burkhart is a, is a complicated figure. 
part of the problem for Renaissance historians today is he's a brilliant writer. He has this rhetorical powers that, you know, we, we know that could have some, some, some dangerous side effects when they're saying something that's not quite right, but it continues to be said over and over again because of how powerfully it's put. But for, for Burkhart, the Renaissance was the rediscovery of, of man and the world. And he talks about medieval people as living in shadows, living kind of under a veil, not understanding themselves. And it's only in the Renaissance where people really grasped that they were individuals for the, really for the first time, at least since antiquity. And yeah, this is an extremely problematic notion of both the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. That because it undervalues the Middle Ages and it overstates the Renaissance exactly. as separate from. That's exactly right. That there are discontinuities. There are ways that we could say, yeah, the mid medieval period, even of, of Aquinas and Dante, the high Middle Ages, and the period of Petrarch and Pico in the, the Renaissance, that there are differences, but that they're not as radical as this, uh, this Swiss historian of the 19th century uh, said that it really was. And, you know, he was influenced and in, in influencing Nietzsche and these other figures of that period who are, are looking at both the, 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 the abilities of the individual, but also some of the, the dangerous aspects of it. So it's a complicated work, but the Middle Ages is really uh, kind of left out to dry in his And, and, in and his it dream. also, by extension, works to discredit Aquinas and Dante right. and their very God-centered universe, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And, and, and I think that they would say, well, Either you are theocentric, you know, God-centered, or anthropocentric, man-centered, and that's the movement from the Middle Ages, which is theocentric, to the Renaissance, which is anthropocentric. But this is extremely problematic. I mean, Thomas Aquinas talks about uh, the human being as the boundary and limit between immaterial divine being and, and material being, that... Aquinas says that when at the end of Matthew it says go into the world and preach to all of creation, he says, well, are we preaching to every single creature, the animals, the rocks, and so on? No, but, but the human being in a way, because he is both immaterial with his soul and material with his body, can stand in for all of creation. Aquinas says that the salvation of one human being, talk about individualism, the salvation of one human being uh, is greater than the creation of the entire universe because it's in a supernatural order. That's a pretty high view of the human being, it seems to me. It is, and, and now I want to put this period in, in, in proper perspective for Americans as well, listening right now. Uh, this country is 238 years old if we date it to the Declaration of Independence. And some people will quibble, you ought to date it to the Constitution, but I always go to the Declaration. Do you agree with me, by the way, Dr. Gaetano, that, that we go to the Declaration for this purpose? This is a very interesting, controversial question at Hillsdale, but... Uh, well, as long as we acknowledge the important achievement of the colonial uh, Americans and how they established the institutions of liberty in America even before the Declaration of Independence, yeah, 1776, declaring independence from Great Britain, that's a, a pretty natural place so to that, start. So we're two, 238 years into the project, and that is your measurement against what the timeline I want to walk through mm -hmm. with you. Rome collapses in 476, and... This is really the Dark Ages from 476 to 800, really, when Charlemagne arrives. There's just disorder and chaos. But slowly, led by the Roman Catholic Church and a variety of, of rulers like William the Conqueror, some order reemerges. In fact, universities are founded, right, Dr. Gaetano? This is a big deal. Exactly. Yeah, scholars actually talk about par partly you know, bringing back what we 
think of as the Renaissance in the 14th and 15th centuries. We talk about the Carolingian Renaissance or the Renaissance of Charlemagne in the early 9th century, and then this 12th century Renaissance you know, in the 1100s when things are stabilizing, population is growing, things are economically much better. And, and yes, universities are being founded, there's schools being established in, in monasteries and cathedrals. This is a serious, serious effort to reappropriate the great cultural and intellectual achievements of antiquity. Uh, long before, you know, Petrarch, Pico, and these figures that, you know, Da Vinci that we associate with the Italian Renaissance. And so Aquinas comes along and he dominates the age and he dies in 1274. And then Dante comes along and he mm -hmm. dies 40 years later or roughly that. And he's written, he's, he's revitalized and extraordinarily redefined poetry through the divine comedy, which we talked about. And then we have a, a hundred year war going on. We talked about Petrarch last week. And then we enter a period of, of sort of wild innovation and lots of names. And so how would you summarize what matters most in those hundred years between sort of that, that Dante period and Machiavelli's The Prince? Right. So there, there's a lot of difficulties and what you might call dark features of the 14th and 15th centuries that at the end of the 1340s, you have the Black Death, where at least a third of Europeans die of the plague. You have the Avignon Papacy, which isn't as bad as people often say it is, but it's the time when the papacy moved from Rome or central Italy up to Avignon in what is today southern France, and the papacy was seen as being a tool of the French monarchy. And uh, again, however true that is, Italians especially, who wanted the papacy back in central Italy, where it belongs in Rome, uh, called it the Babylonian captivity of the church. In the end of the 14th century, you have the Great Schism, where you have a pope in Avignon and a pope in Rome. And you know, th th this is not the kind of uh, situation that really anyone wants at this particular time. And there are extraordinary events as well coming up. Very Joan of Arc is a real person. Churchill, in the history of the English-speaking mm. people, says... Had she not existed, we would have had to create her. She's just so wonderful a figure. And, of course, she, she heard the voice of God and led the French armies to defeat the English armies. But she's a real person. These are real events swirling and interconnected, Dr. Gaetano, with the artists and the thinkers of their time. That's right. Yeah, and the, and the Hundred Years' War, which, uh, of which Joan of Arc was a part. I mean, that's another real challenging uh, moment in this 14th, uh, early 15th century period. But at the same time, you have this revival of interest in poetry. You know, Aquinas and Dante already had the ancients, at least some of them, like Aristotle. And what, what Petrarch is doing, as we talked about a little bit last week, is really looking to walk in the footsteps of the ancients, to speak and write and think much more, not only drawing from the ancients, but actually living very much like they did. And so that revival of poetry is something that you don't see in Aquinas as much, but that becomes a central part of this Italian cultural leadership of the 14th, 15th century that we think of as the Renaissance. We come right back with Dr. Matthew Gaetano. The Hillsdale Dialogues, every one of them available at Hugh for Hillsdale, F-O-R, Hillsdale.com, or just go to Hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back. 34 minutes after the hour, Americans of Hillsdale Dialogue, our new friends up in Montana say, what's this? This is not, we're not talking about the VA and Shinseki being fired today, and we're not talking about Hillary's memoir being released. We're talking about things that happened 600 years ago, and for a reason. For a reason, because you really can't understand anything that happens today unless you get there somehow. And we have patiently been doing that over the last year and a half in the Hillsdale Dialogue. 
I'm going to save the next segment, um, Dr. Gaetano, for Pico and his oration on the dignity of man. And we'll focus on one work and why it matters and defines it. But just for a moment, there's this extraordinary period. 1498, Da Vinci paints The Last Supper. Two years later, Michelangelo sculpts the Pieta. Uh, A few years after that, David, which I think is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, Da Vinci comes back with the Mona Lisa. Michelangelo answers with the Sistine Chapel. And to, I think, in many popular understandings of the Renaissance, this is the Renaissance. These five years, they don't get it. You know, this is like the explosion of of the popular symbols of that period. Why did it happen then, do you think? That's a, a very difficult question, but you know, to, to take a stab at it, that we do think, when we think of the Renaissance, I think we do think of art. I don't think we think immediately of the sonnet or right. Petrarch's poetry. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and the, this great fluorescence of, of art in this high Renaissance of the late 15th, early 16th centuries is, is very much in the middle of all of that political difficulty that we were just discussing, that in 1494, the French come down across the Alps, and it's a period called the Italian Wars, where Europeans start to fight over these Italian cities, and the cities are all ganging up against one another. And it's a very difficult period where, you know, a lot of artists and poets and humanists go to Rome, and, you know, this is the period where, you know, the papacy is really trying to say, well, yeah, fine, we shouldn't have been in Avignon, perhaps. Now we're going to be in Rome. We're going to make this city of Rome work in a way that it really hasn't for a thousand years. And so we're going to engage in all these great building projects and all this gorgeous decoration of those building projects that we see uh, being you know, produced by these brilliant, brilliant Renaissance artists. So my, my one question is, how could they pull it off? But if you gave it to the United States government to try and produce works of great art, you'll get horrible stuff. So how come the papacy could do it, but it could not be done today? Right. Well, I'm, I'm a good... I'm a good Republican, you know, uh, uh, you know, virtuous republic, you know, worried about monarchy and all that sort of thing. But, you know, we have to we have to give some credit to this aristocratic culture, you know, that the the this the nobles who were patronizing uh, these artists, you know, what were they asking for? They were asking for works of fine beauty, and this continues in the 17th and 18th centuries, and you know. Uh, is is a, is, a, is a nobleman who's living in a fine house that's 200 years old trying to decorate it for his you know great 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 grandchildren going to have a different vision of what is beautiful art than you know a, you know a bureaucrat or or someone like that who might be funding art today and and so it's not as much a problem of patronage it's a problem of who's doing the patronizing and of course who's doing you know who's actually uh, producing the art Whose judgment, have, whose judgment right. and whose talent are respectively being employed. Now, that's a exactly. great answer. Now, my last question before we move on to the next segment is, in the middle of all this comes one technological device, one invention, Gutenberg. That's right. And, of course, that is a hemorrhage in the world, isn't it? The, the printing press was something, you know, there were intellectuals at the time who worried about the printing press in, in much the way that you could say, you know, Plato, Socrates... Uh, in one of the dialogues, talks about how the the art of writing is going to make people uh, not as capable of memorizing great things, and they think they know something when in fact it's just written down. And you know, this was something that the printing press only heightened, and you know, of course, today with the the internet, it only exacerbates this problem. But just like the internet, uh, the printing press made available all sorts of text, allowed at least over the course of time to have text be standardized. 
uh, that you're not having to hunt down manuscripts uh, that you find and then are lost again. That once you print it a thousand, two thousand copies of something, that at least gives a, a kind of stability that was important for some of these intellectual achievements of this period. And so I, I'm just curious that we got a minute left to the break. We are in one of those technological revolutions right now where a vast dispersion of information is occurring that has never happened before. And we see dynamic change coming soon as after that in the way the world is ordered. Do you expect the same thing, Dr. Gaetano? I really think that, you know, I, I, I tend towards the view of, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. But, you know, this you know, explosion of information, I think, really asks us to think more deeply about you know, what it is to be an educated human being. And I, and I think about this as a teacher, that is it just my job to transmit information? You know, it seems to me that, you know, if that's all I'm doing, I'm going to be easily replaced. Rather, and I think this is a general vision at Hillsdale, to be part of a conversation, to engage deeply in certain profound questions about the nature of truth and goodness, that it's not just a bunch of facts and data that you can get on Wikipedia or something, however unreliable that is, but a, a kind of conversation between human beings seeking learning and who have some learning already. We'll be right back. One more segment in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America, and to all of the Hillsdale Dialogue devotees across the United States, uh, I'm telling you, we are we are working real hard here. Kyle uh, Mernon at the, at the college and Dr. Gaetano and Dr. Orange who have figured out how to go from Aquinas to Machiavelli, and we decided we would sprint. But we would sprint, and rather than rush at the end, we would slow down for one segment and focus on one man, Pico, and one of his works, The Oration on the Dignity of Man, which was written in 1486, for a reason, which I will let Dr. Matthew Gaetano from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, explain. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola is this remarkable figure who, even in his own day, was called the phoenix, the, the great gen genius, the, uh, this great figure uh, in his own time. Uh, Thomas More, just a few years later, a few decades later, is writing, translating a biography of Pico, who, who died as a very, very young man. And uh, here, this oration on the dignity of man was composed when he was in his early 20s. And this, this fellow Pico... Doesn't that humble you, Professor? Aren't absolutely. you in your early 20s? Well, I'm I've finally headed into my early 30s, but okay, so you're even though I'm 10 years Pico older, now. I'm still yeah. uh, you know I couldn't defend as he does, well attempts to do, wants to do, defend 900 contested theses wow. drawn from and this is a very renaissance kind of thing. Not only the Greeks, not only scripture, but from you know uh, later rabbis, from Persians, from the the Arabs, from from this kind of syncretic drawing together of learning and culture from all across, all across you know the then known world. And I'm going to guess said, that he's early twenties. Ninety nine point nine percent of the people listening have never heard of Pico, unless they're in L.A. and driving on Pico Boulevard, and and then it's not the same Pico. So why isn't that he known in the way that Da Vinci and and um, Erasmus and these are different periods and Joan of Arc and Chaucer and Thomas Aquinas? How come Pico doesn't get his due? In his own day, Pico was, was, as I said, a very famous man. But you know, this our study of Renaissance humanism you know, is you know, it's just it's largely ignored, even though so many of the texts, so many of the ways in which we have access to ancient culture and thought was, to a certain extent, at least an achievement of these very figures. Uh, but 
and perhaps it's also because they're you know they're writing in Latin, and these languages are not available to us. Even though most most of a lot of Pico is translated, but you know not as much as as needs to be. But you know this figure Pico, uh, even though as I said he died he died young and he was writing this in his early twenties, gives this oration on the the dignity of man, which for someone like Burkhart, right, who's saying that the Renaissance is anthropocentric, is centered on the human being. You know, that would have really caught his ear. And what, what Pico argues in this oration, which was setting up these 900 theses that he wanted to defend, is, that, is to ask, well, why is man so great? And he wants to say, why is man greater than the angels? And he knew that people like Thomas Aquinas and medieval figures and ancient figures had said man has a great dignity in this world because he is a rational animal, not merely an animal. But Pico wants to say there's a way in which man is greater even than the angels. And that's because, and this is a little bit strange, man doesn't really have a fixed nature. Right? Pico wants to say that there's a great chain of being, down from the, you know, the plants, animals, to the, the heavenly bodies, to the angels, and up, up to God. And that he says man doesn't really fit, that the human being could, can go can go down and live and truly, in a certain sense, become a beast through vicious actions, but could also ascend through being connected with his intellect to the life of the angels, the life of the angelic beings. And even at the very end, he says, and if happy in the lot, the lot of no created thing, man withdraws into the center of his own unity, his spirit made one with God, in the solitary darkness of God, who is set above all things, he shall su surpass them all. And so this, this view of the human being and, and that kind of a centrality of, of, of the human is something that you know, Pico, this oration, has become symbolic for that anthropocentrism of the Italian, of the Italian Renaissance. Is it easily read? Is it easily accessible by people? I think the oration of the dignity of man is is reasonably accessible, and it's 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 relatively short. So even if you have to work through it, it's something that it, it wouldn't take you too much time to go you know, line by line, word by word. And does it surprise your students when they come to it? No, they're a bit disturbed by it because you know they're worried about, as I said earlier, this secular humanism. That hasn't it been the case that in the modern world, man has, in a certain sense, in his own mind, dis dipla displaced God. And they see in Pico perhaps seeds of that. Now, I would say that, you know, I, I don't think really Pico's really guilty of that. He's saying some strange things that, you know, man can become an angel and really some, some odd views drawn from these you know, rabbis and from the Arabs and from other different uh, cultures. But he's not displacing God. He's saying we need to live not like a beast, but like an angel by cultivating our intellect by cultivating virtue. And this is where, you know, we've been talking about Machiavelli, and, and I know you'll give a whole session to him, that Machiavelli, you know, he makes man central in a certain way, and he really ignores the divine in his prints and even in his discourses on Livy. But he has a very low view of the human being, right? Pico, Pico's saying, don't act like a beast. Machiavelli's saying, look, we're going to act like beasts. And a realistic politics is to recognize that, you know, if, if if we're going to rule beasts, we sometimes need to act like a beast. He talks about so, the prince being a fox or a lion, deceptive or forcefully violent. Pico would never say something like that. Petrarch would say nothing like that. Of course, Aquinas would say nothing like that. But this gets Pico a very modern result. He gets declared a heretic. 
That's a very modern that, result, right? That's that means you've crossed over the boundary of acceptable, and that becomes when when boundaries are acceptable mm-hmm. and unacceptable, you're really entering into the modern age of ruthlessness, aren't you? You make an interesting point, Hugh. I, you know, Pico. Pico does give this oration, and it does disturb us because we're worried, right, about God somehow being displaced by man in our modern way of thinking. But what's really striking is that when the church saw Pico's oration and the 900 theses, they don't condemn him for this oration celebrating man's dignity. I think that's pretty familiar. You know, they're condemning him, and they do condemn him for other views that about hell, about the, the incarnation, much more narrow theological perspectives that, you know, a, an early, a guy in his early 20s might have been a bit rash, but I'm not <laughs> sure he's condemning everything, you know, he had to say. Dr. Matthew Gaetano, you have done your force march through 150 years very, very well indeed. Thank you, my friend. Next week, The Prince, Machiavelli. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back to wrap up this week's Hewitt Show.